Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the Europe Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about paper. As anyone involved in the practical business of trade will tell you, trade involves a lot of documents. We are going to talk about the problems associated with that and why it is so difficult to change. We'll be joined by two special guests. Alyssa DiCaprio is the head of trade and supply chain at R3, which is a software company that uses blockchain and basically sells services to companies so that they can use it too. We'll also be joined by Sarah Green, the Law Commissioner for Commercial and Common Law at the Law Commission of England and Wales. Sarah's part of an effort to ditch paper. Starting from the basics, trade in practice is hard. It relies on trust. And paper is supposed to foster that trust. To give a personal anecdote, um, I just sent the vast majority of my possessions in a shipping container from America to the UK. And there are a bunch of pieces of paper associated with that transaction. Those documents are helpful. When my stuff arrives, I will have a list of everything. I can check that none of my vitally important books about international trade have been pilfered on the way. But those documents also set out who has rights and responsibilities over that stuff while I don't have it. And that makes me much more comfortable about letting it travel. It fosters trust. And that's important because I really do not want to spend five weeks on a container ship guarding my things. Luckily, we have moved beyond a world in which merchants actually have to travel with the stuff that they're selling. Now we have these documents of title that say, you own this thing, and that gives you rights within the law. Paper documents can assign obligations, and those can be transferred when the piece of paper moves between people, including obligations to pay or or to deliver goods. Here's Alyssa. When you're exporting a good, the seller and the buyer probably come from different countries. They're using different currencies. They may speak different languages, but they've agreed on this transaction. So they often bring their banks into these transactions because they don't have that level of trust between each other. So what ends up happening is the seller produces the goods and there's a purchase order and an invoice from the buyer and the seller that need to match. So I've ordered this many goods, I have produced this many goods, I'm selling those to you. So you have those two documents. And then the goods are put on a cargo ship and the carrier produces a bill of lading, which is essentially a document of title, but it also functions as a receipt. So now you have these three at least documents, plus a packing list. And ultimately, this will also include warehouse receipts and and different documents from uh, the logistics agent, uh, you know, the truck that is taking your goods from the port to the warehouse and the warehouse to the final destination. And for a bank, as this transaction has been financed, they require a document pack, which is effectively all of these documents together, at which point they will assure that these documents meet the terms of the contract that have been made made for the finance part of the transaction, and then that will be paid. So every one of these documents is incredibly important, not only to have correct, which it not not always is, but to have presented at the end in original format. There is a reason that paper is a technology being used here. And yes, paper is a technology. Um, It is portable, it is convenient to use, There is interoperability. Uh, 
pens, signatures, those are pretty international. Paper can also be certified or signed or basically proven to be the correct thing. But all of this adds up to a lot of documents. One transaction can require between 10, maybe 20 paper documents. There's one estimate that global container shipping generates 28.5 billion paper documents a year. And so much paper sets up a lot of problems. There's, there's a number of different problems with paper, and I think we're, we're familiar with the broad outlines of most of them, right? The environmental impact, the storage costs, you have to have lots and lots of file cabinets. Uh, another important feature of this, though, is the usability of data. Um, because today, you know, with the rise of e-commerce and search engines and ads, we know how important data is today. And if your data is on paper, it's very difficult to search it. And, and so that really takes, it, takes that data almost out of circulation. You know, there, there's a really interesting statistic where I think in, in 1996, it was estimated that 96% of all business information was on paper. That's a lot of very intricate filing systems that you need to maintain. And a lot of information that just wasn't out in circulation. Digitization is pretty great. Think of emails. So much easier to, to organize and search than paper correspondence. There are other costs associated with paper. These documents to trade, there's going to be money made by issuing them. And from the perspective of people trying to trade, all these paper documents are super, super expensive. So all of, all of these documents are, often has, have a cost associated with them. Some of them, it's a very direct cost. So when you get a bill of lading, for example, the carrier will likely charge you, um, in general, about $150 for that, for that bill of lading. Every piece of cargo on a ship has a bill of lading associated with it. So often this is, this is very profitable to carriers, right? I mean, you can, it can be $100,000 for a, you know, a, a single shipload. Other types of paper you generate yourself, like a purchase order and an invoice, may not have a cost initially to generate, but does have a cost if the data on that is incorrect. So, for example, if, you're, if your invoice does not match the purchase order and that happens at a certain point in time, then you need to stop and reconcile that. So the entire transaction stops and you have to roll it back, figure out where the error was, correct it, reissue it, and then match it again. So these paper documents are vulnerable to people making mistakes. They're not very easy to trace, so they can they can enable corruption. They're also not very pandemic friendly. You know, when when a global health crisis hits and suddenly global logistics is very very screwed up, documents don't always sail with the cargo. And if a shipment arrives without the right documentation, it means the ship can't unload. Here is Alyssa. So during the pandemic, there were, there were a number of different problems with paper. Part of it was simply printing documents because everybody was at home. They weren't at work anymore. Um, some documents are secure documents, so they have to be printed. Or the way that the business process was, was implemented was that they had to be printed from a certain, from a certain printer with a code. How, how were you going to do that when you were at home? Who were you even shipping these documents to? Because normally you would ship them to a company and now nobody was actually at that company. Were you shipping it to their home? It was very unclear. So, so part of it was, who did the documents go to and where, where did they go? 
And then part of it was how do you get the documents where they need to go? Because, you know, as I as I had mentioned, part of an international trade transaction is it's often financed, right? So you have this, this financial uh, component with it, which means that the banks are requiring original documents. The way that those original documents get there is they're FedExed across the world. And that was not able to happen during COVID because DHL, FedEx, all, all of the large carriers stopped going to certain areas. And, and some of the countries were closed as well. India was a big problem um, where borders were closed. Planes were not allowed to come in. DHL wouldn't even pick up documents for certain zip codes in India. And this is, this is a big problem for the financial component of this because when you have financed a transaction, say you use a letter of credit, it expires so it's incredibly important to get these documents to the recipient bank in a very timely process. And if they don't, they expire. And, and this became a, a, a huge problem during COVID. I, you know, I saw this from the inside uh, working with banks. You know, we do a lot of work with banks. Uh, you know, I, I sit on the ICC Digitization Committee. Um, I work with BAFT in the U.S., which is a banking association. And all of the banks were kind of unsure of what to do because, Trade had just trade hadn't stopped, but the ability to ship documents had stopped, and and this is something I think a lot of people didn't see during COVID because we don't see it as as we're sitting at home, especially if we're not working in, in the sector. I know I didn't see that this was happening. I asked Alyssa how it got resolved. It's it's a pretty interesting question because what ended up happening is international trade needs to keep flowing. I mean that's the job of everybody. It can't stop, and and we know this, right? And so there were all kinds of ad hoc measures that were put into place. We actually issued a a really interesting paper from the ICC uh, digitization working group where it it was called, you know, ad hoc measures that that banks are taking to keep trade flowing. And it really looked at some of some of the things that were being done. Um, The problem, again, with paper is that you need physical signatures and it's like a a physical document. Um, So what different actors began doing is they were taking pictures of documents because you might not have a scan, again, you might not have a scanner at home. Um, so you take a picture of the document, you email that to your bank or to the buyer as, as an authentic proof of shipment. Obviously, these things would never stand up, you know, in an insurance claim or in court. But this is what was being done. The ways that it was being authenticated in banks, for example, banks were accepting photographs. They were rolling out as fast as they could these digital solutions, which you know, maybe had been put in place slowly over time, but had not rolled out globally, and they were forced to suddenly go digital in an emergency. There are some things then in the process of trade that can be digitized, and I'm sure the pandemic helped to accelerate the the process of those things going digital. But as Alyssa said, some things, some of these digital documents would not have stood up in an insurance claim or, or in court. As the law, as it is currently written, stands, you really do need paper. The law is one important reason why you can't say, hey, this paper thing is kind of a pain. Let's go electronic. Here's where Sarah Green of the Law Commission of England and Wales comes in. The Law Commission is an apolitical body that comes up with recommendations for changes to the law, and in this case, can actually propose legislation. More than two-thirds of their past recommendations have actually been translated into legal change. So if they're looking into this paper trade issue today, and if they recommend some reform, 
there's a really good chance that it will end up happening. So the Law Commission of England and Wales is looking into this issue. Can they change the law to allow digital documents to be used? And if they went ahead with it, it would be a really big deal. English law is important. And I'm not just saying that because I am British. A lot of contracts in international trade are written using English law. And a lot of legal systems around the world follow English law. So a change could have these really big international ripple effects. The fundamental issue is that all of this trade is happening using English law based on a law that was written in 1882. 1882 was a while ago. Uh, That year, America got its first commercial electrical power plant. And as you can imagine, the internet was not really a thing. The law as it was written in 1882 and as it has evolved since just does not recognize electronic documents. Now, you might think, okay, just change the law so that it does recognize electronic documents. But it's not that straightforward. Partly that's because of what's known as the double spend problem. Here's Sarah. So the double spend problem is something that we've all taken for granted, really, when we've used, um, for instance, cash. So if I give you a pound coin or a £10 note, that means that I no longer have that pound to spend and I no longer have that £10 note to spend. Historically, with physical things, that's always the case. So we didn't really give it much thought. If I have something that's physical and I pass it on, I no longer have that thing and I can't spend it again. The problem with electronic money until relatively recently is that it was really difficult to achieve that. I could have something of value on, say, my computer, on my hard drive. I could transfer it, but I could also duplicate it. So I could transfer it to another party, but I could also keep it and purport to transfer it again. And of course, that that is no good, because what that does is that detracts from the integrity of transactions. If I transfer something to you, you want to know that that is then yours. You have title to it, and it has left me. And so that is the double spend problem, which for a very long time, as I said, was was dealt with very simply through physical tokens. So simply when they've gone, they've gone. Paper solves the double spend problem, which is, is relevant in trade because you need one bill of lading, one document saying this is the stuff in the container, this is the contract. Historically, paper has been used because of the double spend problem. So if I hold a piece of paper, then you can't hold it at the same time. And obviously, another party cannot hold it at the same time, which means that if that paper gives me title to the goods to which it relates, then I am the only party that has that title. It's particularly important to financial institutions who want to lend in relation to the goods to which it relates. They don't want two people turning up and claiming ownership of those goods. And that's what paper has provided us with for, well, centuries, I suppose. So it's not a straightforward exercise of of just adding a footnote somewhere saying electronic documents are cool too. You have to make sure that these digital documents have those special features that are so important to the paper documents actually working as well as they do. Here's Sarah. 
The issue in this area, I mean, I'm sure lots of people have heard the old adage uh, that possession is nine tenths of the law. Um, and actually, I would say it's probably more than that. And one of the problematic, well, actually, the problematic issue in this sense is possession. And the problem is that this historical law has left us in a position where something cannot, in the eyes of the law, be possessed unless it is tangible. And I should also add here that as far as the law is concerned, digital things such as electronic documents are regarded as intangible. Now, there might be people who disagree with that as a classification, but that's where we are. So electronic things, digital things are seen as intangible. And at the moment, as the law stands, intangible things cannot be possessed. If something cannot be possessed, then it cannot have the effect in law that we want electronic trade documents to have, which is that they give title or they give rights to the holder simply by virtue of the holding. So that holding, that possession is all important. So if I can't possess something, it doesn't give me those rights. So the Law Commission's uh, proposals in their consultation paper and draft bill aim essentially to decouple the notions of possession and tangibility. We need to get to a point where electronic trade documents can be seen by the law as being possessible. Once we've done that, everything else will fall into place and they will be given the same legal effect as their paper counterparts. So what we decided to do was to look at what it was about paper or tangible things that was important to possession. What we didn't want to do, and what's really important, is to say that everything that's intangible should be subject to possession because that will mean that lots of legal implications will follow that we might not want to happen. So we wanted to extricate from the notion of possession what it is that's legally important. So we looked at lots of old cases that look at possession and we drew out the legally significant characteristics. Because the other thing we wanted to do in these reforms was to make sure that they are robust for years to come. So they are technology neutral. We don't, for instance, want to say that if something's on a distributed ledger, that's okay, it can be possessable, because who knows how long distributed ledger technology will be um, mainstream or wanting to be used. So what we have said is, we've given three characteristics and said, once something meets these three characteristics. It doesn't matter whether it's tangible or intangible or electronic or otherwise. These characteristics are now the important, um, well, according to our proposals, these characteristics are now the touchstone of possessibility. Forget about tangibility, that's a red herring. And those characteristics are, first, that something has an existence independent of people. And that's to um, distinguish it from a legal right, like a debt. So a debt doesn't have any existence other than between the two people, um, you know, one person who owes money to the other. What we wanted to distinguish was that from something like, say, a database or an electronic trade document, that even if those people didn't exist, even if we didn't have a legal system, that thing would still be there in the world. The second thing is that it's amenable to exclusive control. So that's the double spend problem again, in part, if I have it, 
nobody else should have access to it or be able to use, transfer and dispose of it. And the third thing is, should be fully divestible so that when I transfer it um, to another party, I lose it. It's no longer mine. So we suggest in our proposals that if those three characteristics or criteria are met by something, such as an electronic trade document, that that is enough for possession. And actually, that's what matters about possession. I mean, the reason that the law has been if you like, sidetracked by the notion of possession, is that historically everything that we wanted to possess was tangible. So the two things got elided. There was never a question about whether you could possess a pen or a car or a cow or a bag of gold. But in the digital age, those two things are not necessarily the same. And that's what our proposal aims to do, is to decouple possession and tangibility. One reason this is happening now is that it's only relatively recently that the technology has become available for for those things to be possible in electronic form. The emergence of technologies relatively recently, I mean, the obvious one to refer to is blockchain technology. It's not the only one, but it probably is the one that most people have heard of. And it's probably also the one that started people thinking about how electronic documents can perform the same functions. So if you have, for instance, distributed ledger technology, that enables us for the first time, really, to get around the double spend problem without relying on paper. Because documents can be created which mimic the um, characteristics of paper in that they have this existence whether or not anybody lays claim to them. They they are, if you like, concrete in the world. They don't just rely for their existence on legal claims to them. Um, They're also amenable to control by one party at a time. So that's what I meant by uh, if I hold it, somebody else can't hold it at the same time. So it's clear who has the paper, therefore who has title to goods. We can now do that with electronic documents. If you access a document through a private key, for instance, that is one way in which you could have exclusive control. The other important thing is that electronic documents now have the ability to be fully transferable and on transfer. So if A transfers document to B, A is fully divested of that document. It's not like your standard Word document where obviously if I email that to somebody, I've got a copy, they've got a copy, and it could be transmitted um, several times or, or countless times. That's no good because that's double spending. But what we can do now with these emerging technologies is to get over that double spend problem without relying on paper. Alyssa's company deals with blockchain. She's obviously then not indifferent between different types of these technologies. But we asked her to explain a bit more about how blockchain could be used in the context of trade. So blockchain is just a database. It's it's not anything more complicated than that. But it's a database that allows you to be decentralized. So if, if you think about it, like use, use a, a letter of credit transaction, right? So you have a trade transaction, you have a buyer-seller, buyer's bank, seller's bank. And they're transferring documents around. So blockchain first allows these documents to be digital. But second, what happens is when the purchase order, for example, is put on blockchain, it's certified by both 
the buyer and the seller before it's committed to blockchain in an immutable way. So they both certified that this purchase order is correct. They both certified that the invoice is correct. And so it can automatically match. And if it doesn't match in the old way, you would have to stop the transaction, go back, confirm the data with both parties, reissue the documents, and then continue the transaction. With blockchain, if it doesn't match, then you can just automatically reissue it. So it becomes a lot easier that way. And then as, as, as the trade transaction goes on, the different documents become amended. They're changed a little bit by each actor in the system. Maybe a little bit of information is added. Okay, the, uh, you know, the goods have been loaded onto the boat. The goods have been offloaded at the port. They've been put into the warehouse. This can all be amended very easily. And it's visible to all parties of the transaction or the parties that you've permission to see it, whichever way you want to do it. So the benefit is both having the documents be electronic and also having it be visible to all parties. Because right now, I mean, think about it when you, when you order something from Amazon um, or an e-commerce website, you don't really know when it's going to show up. Amazon kind of says like, okay, it'll be there Monday or Tuesday. Um, you don't know where it is. Increasingly, there's different sites that will allow you to track to some extent. But with blockchain, you could see this. You could see you know, where fees are being put in, um, why those fees are being put in, which actor is doing it, exactly where it is. So it creates a lot more visibility. And the immutability of this is beneficial for, you know, the issue of inclusion. So, you know, if you think about small and medium-sized enterprises where they have a lot of difficulty uh, kind of showing their history of transactions, if the bank has a history or if your, your buyer has a history, then you have a history. And, and so it creates this additional information about small and medium-sized enterprises that we don't have today, um, which is incredibly important. This might be the first time in, in over 150 episodes that we've mentioned the words blockchain, and it, it probably will be the last. But going back to the consultation, which could enable the use of technologies other than blockchain, it is open until July 31st. And chances are looking pretty good. As law commission projects go, this is quite unusual in that there is very little resistance to this change. It does seem that some people have been worried about fraud, but that seems to be because they're thinking about word documents being emailed around, which is really not what the law commission is thinking about allowing as a replacement for these paper documents. And it's also not like paper wouldn't be recognized anymore they are proposing something that would allow a process to change from paper to electronic form and then the other way around. Uh, it's also important to say that Singapore and Abu Dhabi have already adopted something similar, uh, although English law would be a much bigger deal because of how important it is for international commercial transactions. So thinking through why we're so hooked on paper, the legal infrastructure is one big reason. If the law changed, that could allow technology other than paper to take over. But there are other reasons why change might not happen overnight. It's hard to change business practices. People might not want the expense of, of investing in an entire new system. And you need to have the infrastructure of the internet and, and smartphones to make all of this work. So far, it doesn't seem like the Law Commission has been hearing a lot of complaints about people who would lose out from these changes. But you can bet that they exist. There are definitely people out there benefiting financially from the way that things work. 
National Chambers of Commerce have operating budgets that depend on the revenue from issuing certain trade documents. Alyssa said that there are these things called e-bills of lading. Um, They cost $20 instead of $150. Um, That is potentially a lot of rent that could not be taken by, by these people. At some point, they could start to kick up a fuss. But just more generally, it is hard to shift to a new digital equilibrium. You just need one person in the chain to demand a paper document, one cautious customs agent who just really, really wants a physical signature, and bam, the the sophisticated digital system that you just built up is useless and you you miss out on, on the advantages, the efficiencies. Even if certain parts of the trade process have become digitized, so like you're talking about IBM or Walmart as the buyer, and they have fully digitized systems, but their suppliers don't. So there's always a certain point in the transaction where even if the transaction is digital, you're going to have to issue paper. It, it just really depends on where in that transaction it is. It might be at the customs level, right? So, so a lot of customs agents still require paper. So you're printing something in quadruplicate on color-coded paper for this particular customs agent. Whereas in a different port, it's fully digital. So you can just submit the digital documents. So, so paper is, is kind of you know, very tricky that way in that you could have what looks like an electronic or a digital process, but in fact, there's still going to be a point at which you have to use paper and that's going to remove a lot of the benefits that you've already had from this electronic process. I think we should wrap up here. I do just want to stress that this isn't just a, a random detail in the business of trade. It's an important practical problem that would be really, really good to fix. Moving away from paper could save a lot of money. It could also help increase transparency of supply chains, which is what everyone is is thinking about and looking forward to in in a post-COVID world where we're trying to make sure that supply chains are more resilient. In poorer countries, I see one of the big benefits as reducing the scope for corruption, um, reducing the scope for subjective decisions. The more stuff is automated, the more smoothly everything can run. Although you, of course, need to make sure that the infrastructure is in place so that everyone can take advantage. Um, yeah, and with that, I think we should we should finish. Huge, huge thanks to Sarah Green of the Law Commission of England and Wales. I think the Law Commission is very keen that people engage with this consultation. So Trade Talks listeners, go forth, be consulted. And a massive thanks as well to Alyssa DiCaprio of R3. Her Twitter feed says that she is an occasional blockchain over-explainer. I think you'll agree that she explained just the right amount of blockchain this time around. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. <laughs>